1: And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. It's another Friday edition. We're so excited to have you guys uh, listening to us. It has been so awesome. What an incredible week. And so, first of all, I have a quick announcement. For those of you that were tuning in to listen to Michael O'Brakta, Uh, I know I sent out a huge email announcement announcing Michael Obrocta, well, just like everything in project management, things can go wrong. And so Michael texted me just about 45 minutes ago, uh, letting me know that uh, he was delayed in travel. So he is in the air on the way home, and so he's not going to make it today. So unfortunately, you get just me, and maybe that's fortunate or unfortunate, but we'll figure out that so because of that we're actually streaming this live on Facebook live right now so you can go to my page at Rick a Morris or at R square consulting uh, and see me do this live so I'm waving to people live and got some great people uh, watching me and including uh, two of my favorite people in the world Sheree Griffin and Amanda Dole so I want to say hello to you guys uh, and give you shout outs to 92 countries around the world right now Um, and so Uh, What we're gonna do today is we're gonna just share uh, another one of my debriefs. I'm gonna debrief some of the thoughts that that I shared with a lot of the people in my community uh, this week. So some of the things that I shared with them, and, and if you want to get some of these thoughts, if you want to be part of these things that I share, you can go to rickamorris.com. There'll be a little pop-up that pops up there, and just give me your email address. And some of these musings, some of these ideas that I get, uh, I just like to share with you guys. It's all about uh, exchanging value. It's all about uh, talking about the project management profession. And even if you're not a project manager, I, I promise there's a ton of value. And it's not a ton of emails. It's not a ton of sales stuff, it's it's really about um, things that you, you see in your corporate world and the corporate environment. And it's just kind of uh, things that sometimes are, are really touching and sometimes are goofy and, and that's what we like to share uh, via email. So you can sign that up at Rick A. Morris. Of course, we also are still uh, rolling out the new products on rickamores.com. So we released two new webinars this week. So for those project managers out there, if you're searching for PDUs or if you're looking for some new products, um, the two webinars that we announced this week were uh, one was the struggle between agile and project management. So this is one of the keynotes that uh, has been most requested around the world for us. It's it's one of the keynotes I'm getting uh, really well known for, and so we put that in a on-demand type webinar that you can get at rickamorris.com. And another one is uh, one I actually just was contracted for for a company. Um, they paid us ten thousand dollars to come in and share this information so i took what i did in a full day and i condensed that into an hour of just kind of rapid fire tips and tricks uh, for those of you that use microsoft projects so you can get that webinar as well as a cheat sheet of all the tips and tricks that we shared you can download that you can find that at rickamorris.com as well as the mentorship program that we shared last week and the project management that works masterclass so all of that Plus the email list, all that you can find at rickamorris.com. So let's get into uh, the show this week. So uh, what I wanted to share with you were just some of the thoughts and things that that kind of came out. And um, the first one uh, that, that I'm going to share with is very personal to me. Um, and so I'd actually had been working with a, a person and we were just talking about um, kind of my philosophy, and where I've gotten a little bit disenfranchised with corporate America. And I get often um, asked this question about why I got into consulting, why I started my own business. And look, I can give you tons of cliches and and random comments and that kind of stuff. But what it really boils down to for me was two things. and and that was my my family and and my father. And so first and foremost is my family. I mean, the only way I knew, how to protect my own work-life balance um, that, that I want to provide for them it, it was to do it on my own. I mean, I was a, a high-powered consultant for some, some big-name organizations. And look, they just kind of used and abused you. you they, they, it was 75, 80-hour weeks, and I wasn't excited about that. And, and at the time that I was doing that, uh, my, my daughter was newborn. So I was, I was missing first cookie and, and uh, first words and you know things like that. And uh, um, and so I kind of did become a little bit cynical of the corporate world uh, because, though, of the example that my father had sent. Uh, in, in 1978, there was three men that, that started this company called USSI, and that was Ken Fisher, Gordon Mann, and, and my dad, uh, Dudley Morris, and they started this company called USSI. And they were really pioneers in the software in, in uh, industry, uh, and they were the first... Uh, people that automated an insurance claim on a mainframe on uh, AS400. And uh, what I remember though was the corporate cruise. Every year, what they did is they they said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna set a stretch goal for the company." And so they had their sales goal, and then they had the stretch goal. And if they hit their stretch goal, then what they would do is they would take everybody in the company out on a cruise. Everybody plus one, and. They would take them to this uh, uh, three-day cruise to the Bahamas, and we lived in Orlando. It was it was easy for them to do that. And while I never got to to, to go on the cruise, my parents always did that. The stories that came back from the cruise and the family um, feeling that this company had had created was was incredible. Um, and I, I remember going to the Christmas parties, and, and Gordon Mann uh, would play uh, "Let's Make a Deal." So so they had all the corporate gifts already up there and already uh, wrapped. And so they would they would literally play, let's make a deal with all the gifts, and then everybody would open up the, the gifts at the end. And there was always like one incredible one, and there was always one silly one, um, which is kind of funny now uh, that, that a great friend of mine hosts, let's make a deal. But anyway, uh, I remembered how the company was a family. And so when I got into the corporate world, I was like, so, you know, where's where's the cruises, man? Where's the family feel? And so I I lost my dad in 1992, and that, that was a profound moment in my life. Um, and I think one of the coolest things for me was uh, it, it was like 19 uh, – I'm saying it, I lost him in 1992. So this was about a year, year and a half ago. Um, I got a chance to, uh, I was doing some work in Orlando and I noticed I was right near the new offices of USSI that the company, my dad had started. And so I went in there and, um, Keith Fisher, Ken's uh, son is running the company now. And so I, I went in there and visited and, and Keith all of a sudden started bringing these people into the room and all of these people worked for my dad. And it was one of the most unbelievable feelings that, that I ever had, um, because they started telling me stories about what it was like to work for my dad and how, uh, incredible it was, uh, to, to work with him. And so I believe I was born into the wrong generation because most people, you know, in my dad's generation, you, when you worked for a company, you, you wore that corporate logo, like a badge of honor. Right. And, um, now it seems like you know we're gonna use you a little bit and we'll we'll use you know they'll they'll use you for a little bit and we'll kind of see if it's mutually beneficial and we'll see how it works out and and that family feeling that my dad created um really kind of set these expectations that a lot of companies couldn't couldn't fulfill for me um and it really kind of helped shape the way i think and and the the way i consult I mean I remember one of my first real professional jobs. Um, they pitched me that family feeling, and um, it turned out to be one of the most demanding and abusive environments I think I ever worked in. I remember I got I got written up, um, I got written up because um, i was I was getting married that weekend, and um, I was leaving the office about ten minutes before like nine pm. in the tuck shop closed at 9 p.m. It was the last moment I could pick up my tux before my wedding. And, and my boss looked at me and was like, dude, I, I I thought you were a team player. And I was like, I, I obviously am a team player. This is the last possible moment that I, that, that I can go get my tux. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, if you, if you want to put your family before this job. And I was like, I absolutely want to put this family before my job. Um, and you know, I've told this story in the show many times before, but you know I was two hundred and eighty percent of my plan, and I was going to get laid off because it was too expensive to 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 pay my bonus. And, and I remember um, running running a, a, a my first team where I was really, you know had responsibility for a lot of people. and um, we we had we were supposed to be like sixty percent, hit sixty percent of these numbers. and we hit ninety nine percent of these numbers. And so when it came down to do reviews, I gave my team all fives. Like how do we how did we not exceed our numbers? And HR came to me and said, no, no, you can't do that. You got only one person can exceed your expectations and and one person has to be below your expectations. And and really that was all about, you know, who was going to get three percent bonus and who was gonna get four percent. But I became disenfranchised with 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 corporate America. And I and I'm sure there's tons of war stories like that out there. And and I think it can change. I think I think the economy and recent difficulties can push us into a new era. I mean, we've been able to discuss things like too big to fail and executive bonuses and how the corruption of, of so few can lead to the destruction uh, of so many. But I think it's time that we start to look beyond the employee ID and start to see people as valuable. And... and we got to make sure that we find people on on our team and go really above and beyond. I mean, when we're using teams like um, productivity or focus and other corporate jargon, um, we're not really showing appreciation for those team members and those people that, that I feel like I've spent my whole career becoming the champion of. And and that's, that's why I have a show called the work life balance. It's why I do um, what I do and, and consult the way I consult because it's really the people that is always going to be the engine for operations and the of revenue and everything if you don't know your people and how they work and how they function if you don't know how to lead them if you don't know how to make them grow then then the organization's going to die in a vine i mean i recently watched an organization um that that was utilizing their staff at 123 and they were they were told to cut 10 percent of their staff due to to budget concerns and at any time there, there, there's an arbitrary number like that, that's just paper pushing. It's a numbers game. And so it's easy to look at a spreadsheet and come up with those decisions. It's so much more difficult to look others in the eye and face the consequences. And so I see companies make lump sum, you sum know, cuts to their staff like that, but they, they never cut the projects or the work or the initiatives. And they feel like that that work will just become absorbed, which means that those people are now left... To, to work 150 percent of their time and feel thankful that that they have a position. So I, I think the financial bubble that that happened is going to cause an employee bubble. And if you don't take care of your people, the, then they're going to leave the organization, right? So so that was one of my rants this week that that I sent out on email, and we've got a couple more of those. So if you guys like that, hang out with us. We're going to let the, uh, the 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 big guys pay some commercials. And pay for our airtime, and we're going to be right back on the work life balance. You're listening to Rick Morris.
0: Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? At 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's one 472 5790 If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance.
1: And we're back to this live edition of the Work-Life Balance. Again, if you were expecting to hear Michael Labracta, uh, he did have to unfortunately cancel because of uh, being on a plane. Uh, his plane was delayed so we're gonna reschedule Michael Michael uh, and get him back on the show so we're just uh, talking about some things and, and feelings that I shared with my group this week and again if you want to get these things directly in your email box as I share them uh, you can find that at RickAMorris.com. so Monday is when I kind of sent out uh, the the feelings and it, th- that I had as I was reflecting on my dad so the next day uh, it, it, again, it, it's so funny because the, these are coming from real conversations and, and just things that, that happen throughout my day and, and um, so I, I was working with this other group and uh, I've been uh, journaling on this for for a while and I, I thought this was kind of funny and um, but the, the next kind of thing I moved into this week as I, as I was just moving through my thoughts, um, what is what I call the plague of ul- ulterior motives and um what what continues to amaze me in corporate America is how much time, effort, and money is wasted internally by companies. Um, and, and one of the the number one causes of this waste is is ulterior motives, right? these These are people who are going to deliberately say and do things in public, but then in private have another motive to their actions. And this is a rampant disease that can cause organizations millions of dollars, right? So instead of having, the, the leadership conversation, the uncomfortable conversation or debating issues, the person or the group would rather act as if they're playing along um, and hope that the initiative fails. And, and so there's several types that, that I categorize these groups into. So for instance, you, you have the, the standard two-faced approach, right? And, and I call this the Eddie Haskell approach. It's, it's the approach that's been around forever. So as soon as any social structure is developed, the approach becomes really evident. So my kids experience it in school and, and unfortunately, some never seem to kind of grow out of this behavior. And so that approach is to act one way in front of one group and then acts, you know, a completely different way in front of sponsors, executives, leaders and that kind of stuff. And so, for an example, an individual can be openly combative and antagonistic towards you in a closed meeting. Then in the team meeting, be open and friendly and act as if they've been working with you all along. And so, you know, Eddie Haskell, if, if you guys remember the show of Leave it to Beaver, Beaver, and depending on your age, some of you may don't even know what I'm talking about. But Eddie was conniving and manipulative and, and, and mean to everyone. But uh, when when the parents were around, he had his best manners on display and gave the illusion to the parents that he was perfectly behaved. And, and I see this happen in, in almost every corporate environment out there. So that, that's one style, right? Uh, another style is, is transference of the issue. And so this approach is to make sure that uh, you're not answering a direct question or issue, right? So if you ask a direct, a direct question, they'll, they'll talk around the subject um, without answering directly, um so they'll transfer the answer back to you or deflect the answer to a person or group that's not available at the time um, and they'll make an art uh, of not answering the question they'll they'll respond to questions with like ah, it'll it'll take whatever you think it'll take or what 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 do you want to do and, and these are purposefully vague answers to questions that can allow them to say that they're being responsive w- without actually answering the question. Now you have like um, people that we call the secret saboteur, right? This group will secretly try to make the initiative fail. Either they disagree with the initiative or they're scared of the change that it might bring. So instead of working with the initiative, they purposefully delay, they don't deliver, they cause rework or they otherwise sabotage the work. And this, this is a particularly dangerous group, right? These are the ones that, um, are, are again they, they they can blend with um with the eddie haskell type right but they're they're doing it in secret right where eddie haskell is being openly combative these people are not are, are not showing it and they're particularly dangerous but i think the one that amazes me the most is what i call the other option and, and i've seen this many times i've experienced it many times um, and this is where the group or the individual wants the theme of the solution to be successful but not necessarily the the current selection um, or currently selected solution to work so for instance uh, a company wanted to do workforce management and so they looked at a project and portfolio management system and an enterprise resource platform and so the business and users wanted that project management system and so there was a key executive one key executive that had former ties to the enterprise system, and, and that's the one that, that she wanted. So instead of debating the decision, the executive allowed the project management system to be purchased, and during the implementation, um, she put on unrealistic demands on the team, changed the scope, changed the success criteria, and eventually the the, the system failed, right? The first implementation group could, didn't succeed. So. Now they're meeting to find out, what do you do? And again, she wants the resource management system. And so instead of pushing again, a decision um, was made to bring in a second group to try to deploy the project management system again. And so surprisingly, she allows that. And again, sabotages that implementation to the point that the second implementation team failed. And finally, then she gets the system that she wanted. The, the problem with that is, is that the, the two years have gone by, millions of dollars have been spent, and you have you know, great employees who put their heart into doing things and, and left all because of, of the lack of courage to, to really do what she, she really wanted in the first place. And so I, I, I share all this with you because these are just things that I've seen in, in my professional life to, to watch and go, what, why are we even doing this? You know, what does that say to your team and your resources and, and the people when you lack the leadership or the guts to make the big call right this this, this can manifest itself by stating that a group wants something when it isn't the true thing that they want right so if an organization that fights for a change of a tool let's say that right the existing tool does what they want this this is another one of my favorites so they have something that that is what they want but it's it, they they say, okay, well, we want to change the tool. But the reality is is that they really don't want to change the tool. What they really want to do is they they want to have control of the tool. Right? And so what they do then is and you see this a lot in like centralized IT departments. You'll get it you'll get a department that wants to go rogue and get another tool. And in the end, what they really wanted was was to have control of the tool. And so then you get all this infighting and tons of money that's spent, and now you've got disparate data and systems and all this kind of stuff. What you really need to be able to do is to have the tough conversations and show the leadership. So when I work with the organizations, I'll go in, and I'll say, well, show us all the different tool sets. And when you start to ask the question, well, why do you have this and why do you have that? They'll say, well, we, we wanted this because we didn't want to wait for this group to do ABC with us. And it's amazing to me the millions of dollars. I mean, I'm talking millions of dollars that are spent. And and it all really comes back to lack of communication, lack of leadership, lack of ownership, and and the unbelievable um, display sometimes that happens. I actually was just talking to, to a great friend of mine today and, you know, she as we were talking, what we were talking about was um, she she feels repressed now in her environment because every time she gives a great idea, she feels like it's it's stolen, and so therefore she doesn't give a lot of ideas anymore. And I said, you know what you're really dealing with is is trust in your executives, right? so so the question back is you know she's she's getting hit now saying, well, you know we need to you, you need to be more communicative." And what they're really saying is we want more of your ideas. And what she's really saying is, well, I don't want to give you any of the ideas because I don't trust you guys anymore. And that's, that's an unbelievable relationship to be in. And so really kind of the the question back, the coaching back is right. How do I, I gain trust back in you? How, how do I share these things with you in a collaborative environment where, where I feel value? And, and that's a tough question and, and a tough thing to have as an employee, but Here's the the net of it. As these executives play these games and and they they make these decisions in these these poor choices, what's happening is the best people in the organization, the ones you never want to leave, they're the ones that are leaving. I mean, I'm talking about the people that have all of the intellectual capital, all the people that that work the hardest, the ones you just, you never wish you would never have to do without, now you do. And then there's the ones that will never leave that you kind of wish would. They're never going to. And it's it's amazing to watch how you just kind of toy with this because you don't want to make a decision or you don't want to deal with it. I'll give you my final one in this category. Uh, when, we, when we put in project portfolio management systems and we start talking about, you know, any kind of configuration, they always want us st- – to, to configure for this 2% of the group that is going to cause havoc. And I always say, why are we going to configure for the 2%, right? Why do you hinder the 98% for the 2%? If you already know the 2 percent's an issue, why don't we just deal with the 2%? Why don't we just confront the 2% and fix that process versus configuring a whole system that's going to hinder the productivity of 98%? And, and when I pose that question... you. They, they just look dumbfounded. Like, I, I can't believe you would even ask that question. So I'll leave that with you <laughs> with that thought. Just think through that. As you're doing things, if you already know there's an issue with an employee or a group of people or that kind of stuff, why do we put systems into place that's going to hinder the 99% of the people that are doing it right? Because we don't feel like dealing with the 1% of the people that, that we're, I guess we're afraid to deal with let's just fix that problem and move on. So I'll leave that thought with you as we take our next break. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance.
0: Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery?
2: and make everything you've got put you out in front.
0: Are you getting the most out of your project management software? Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance.
1: All right. And we are back to the Work-Life Balance for our third segment this Friday afternoon. I'm so excited for you guys here. We're also streaming this live on Facebook, so you can find that on the R Consulting webpage. Or on Rick A. Morris at Facebook. So uh, we've been talking about just musings and thoughts and feelings that I had this week. And as I'm thinking back of those, uh, I guess I was a little on fire this week. And so you know, I first started thinking, you know, about my dad in, in, in corporate world and being a little disenfranchised with that. And then we were talking about the executives that that kind of failed to make a decision to to uh, that can really cost a lot of money. And, and then I flipped that around a little bit and started thinking more on that employee side. So There's something that I've been teaching for a while, uh, which I call it the Chicken Little syndrome, and um, it's it's always you know does this issue warrant this much attention? And and I've I've taught my kids this, and I teach project managers this, and. Uh, I, I teach this in, in my seminars, but we talk about the sky is falling and, and it's the overreaction, the, the storm that, that that breaks up the calm or, or the person who's just trying to get noticed, whatever the cause, right? I call it the chicken little syndrome and it can hurt your credibility as well as cause disruption and productivity lost uh, for the organization. So what is it? What, what, what do I mean by the chicken little syndrome? So this is taking a small fact or occurrence and blowing it so out of proportion that it becomes the center of attention to executives. And so many times the motivation behind it can seem pure, uh, but a lot of times it it can also be really dangerous. And so I teach all the time about getting to the data. If I have more data than you and I can speak intelligently about the data, then I have a higher chance of of winning the outcome, whatever the decision is that I'm trying to get or the outcome that I'm getting um then then it seems to you know i can i can win if i have more data and uh so but just like anything i it's my Spider-Man quote too with with great power comes great responsibility and so so the chicken little syndrome though is someone who can take a small fact or issue or data point and, and uses it to, to warn of impending doom without understanding what the data point really is. And, and I see the syndrome almost on a weekly basis and sometimes more often than that. So what, when it really can become fun is if the data points are theoretical. So like for instance, take estimates, right? I, I always remind project managers that when we get something from an employee that the first key word is that it's an estimate. Right, the word alone implies that it was a guess. So I don't, I, 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 can't stand it when I watch a project manager beat, you know, beat up a resource because they missed their estimate, right? And it, it, it was an estimate in the first place. So it, they, they didn't know. So how can we sit there and go, I can't believe this project's late. I can't believe you're running behind on, on your work because it was an estimate. So what we have to do is we have to be better as project managers, getting better data from them and being better at, at helping them estimate and also setting the expectation that it's not a, a perfect value. It's an imperfect value. And whenever there are imperfections or data points that are open to widening levels of interpretation, then the chicken little syndrome can, can rear its ugly head. So I always feel like there's something behind the chicken little syndrome right so something else may not be right on the surface but it it it, it could be a true prediction of doom but uh, i'll give you a great example of what i'm talking about um so there there was a time where we were working on this project and there, there was a consultant um who had built this work estimation model and uh, he he worked with the client for an extended amount of time and, and that model came out to be about plus or minus 7% accurate. So the model was pretty accurate, looked pretty good, but it required um, a heavy use of time for the end user and they had to, to track large amounts of different data points to, to get the feedback to, to work in this model. So they had brought us in and we had to, to put all this and automate this into a data system. And, and when we started to look at it, we started to notice that in all the different things that they were doing and spending a ton of time on, there wasn't a large percentage difference. So we we created a different way to do it and our way was about plus or minus 10% accurate, but we saved about 10 hours per week per consultant. And, and we only were off by about 3% additionally in, in accuracy and, and the team accepted that. Now this first consultant felt really strongly uh, that the way that, that he had designed it was the best way. And and not wanting to be outdone, he, he really set out to disprove our model. And so he started to create specific test cases where the model was originally created was much better than ours. And he turned that into charts and graphs and presentations stating that you know the sky's about to fall. I mean he went into full chicken little. And so this grabbed the attention of the executives Uh, who had just finished spending a lot of money to create this second model and this automation. So doubt and worry and panic sets in. Meetings, conference calls, tons of side conversations get generated. And, And so what that meant is they started to make us try to prove our model. And so what we started to do is say, you know, sure, he's right, but... In this specific case, and here's, you know, 30 other cases where he's not right. And in this specific case, we're actually better than his model. And so instead of working on the system and focusing on the use of the tool, time is spent debating and validating models. It becomes a war of presentations more than anything, right? I mean, it just becomes, you know, consultant versus consultant. And so chicken little syndrome is taken over center stage hours upon hours of time are spent trying to prove that the sky is not falling, essentially. And even better, the debate, right, if we boil down the debate, it's about whether 7 percent plus or minus 7 percent or plus or minus 10 percent is accurate enough. I mean, in the end, I think really he was just looking for validation. I mean, there was time and effort and, and a lot of good work was placed into the model and no model is truly right or wrong. They both have advantages or disadvantages, but because he created such a stir, now the organization has, has to make a decision and because they have to make a decision, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose this argument, right? That's a great example to me of, 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 chicken little syndrome. I mean, to me, that's what I think causes, you know, huge delays, lots of money, lots of issues in an organization where it doesn't have to. Right. Because because while one is is three percent more accurate, you know, if you've got 100 people using it times 10 hours. Right. So what are you getting for that additional three percent accuracy? And, and, and but but now you've got doubt and worry and people are thinking, oh, it's going to be wrong. So another form of, of chicken little syndrome to me is called blame storming or issue deflection. Right. So this occurs with, when there's an issue that someone causes or a major mistake is made on a project. So instead of just confessing to the issue or admitting fault, then, right, that person then launches into a meeting and creates a great hubbub about something in the complete opposite direction of the issue, right? Or some grandiose statement is made. And and sometimes it's just a downright lie. But regardless of what is said, the intention of saying it is to create a commotion and take the attention off of them and place it somewhere with the hopes that the original issue will be resolved or go away. And this just creates distraction, ultimately hurts the organizations, right? It hurts, hurts people. And the whole point is, right, you, you still made that mistake, but instead, uh, you know, I can't be held to that mistake, so I'm just going to create distraction over here, right? Hey, look over here. Check this out. Right? And I, I've also seen forms uh, of chicken little syndrome where the person sees everything as a personal battle, right? It's as if the whole company I- I- is conspiring to interrupt that individual's workflow, right? These are the ones that every conversation is discussing how he or she gave an ultimatum or had to stop someone from destroying life as we know it. Each story consists of what an idiot everyone else is and how he or she alone saved the day. Work, relationships, fights with the mailman, how the cable company is trying to, you know, personally steal from them. I mean, it's a defensive and hurtful posture, right? And so you just look at them and go, wow, is life that difficult? And so is there an antidote for, for chicken little syndrome? I'm, I'm not sure, right? I think it can be combated in a couple of different ways. First, you got to be savvy to what's really happening, Right? See if you can identify and work with a person that appears to have this and see if you can really get to the root cause of why they're doing it. Right? So don't right? – I, I don't pay attention to the distraction. I pay attention to the cause. Make sure that they don't see the issue as a battle. Right? The other way to combat it is to call the behavior out for what it is. Right? Ask for the motivations. Ask for why they feel so strongly uh, about their statements and see if you can get them to discuss openly what's really happening. One of my favorite techniques around that is the five why technique. That's where you ask why five times um, to help identify the root cause or the cause and effect of the relationship of the issue. So if you feel like that, right? If you feel like you're about to expose the next grand conspiracy or trying to deflect blame or take a mistake off of you, I mean, take a step back. Are you really creating a bigger issue than what it really is? Or could there be alternative solutions? Is it possible the data that you're referencing is not correct? I mean, make sure you're being objective before you raise such a large issue, and if you are, then raise it, right? But if I ask you to name somebody, right, you know somebody right now that contracts chicken little syndrome often, and most of you listening to me could probably already come up with a name immediately. Sometimes these people just want to be appreciative for doing a good job, right? Sometimes it's their insecurities, but whatever the cause, nine times out of 10, there's a cause. And if we can find out what that root cause is and help them solve it, then we can help them be that better person that they're looking for, right? So look, I think it's an interesting thing, um, but I think at the, at the end of the day, if we live the values and, and, and the values that we profess so many times on the show uh, that we learned from, from John uh, Maxwell – Right? But if you love people unconditionally every day, you believe in people and you value people every day, then you can stop a lot of these things happening. But it's so funny to me to watch one person who can spin up a whole big issue and literally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage just because essentially – somebody didn't see the value in them. And so you need to make sure that we see people for who they are and we're getting to the cause of the issue and not paying attention to the distraction. So we'll leave that thought there. We're gonna take our final break and we'll be right back on the Work-Life Balance. You're listening to Rick Morris.
2: In today's hyper fast, super competitive business world, on time is now too late. On budget is now too expensive
0: You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at one 472 5790 Again, that's one 472 5790 If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life
1: Balance. All right. And so we're back for the final segment of the work life balance. And I appreciate you guys hanging on with us here on voiceamerica.com. And again, we just signed for another year of the show. So we'll be doing our third full year of the show. Um, and of course, if you've missed any of our shows, they're available on iTunes. Uh, you can go subscribe to the podcast and go get all of our prior episodes. So the final thought I kind of want to share with on this last segment is every situation is an assignment. And, um, this one this one hit me it's something that I journaled a while back and, and I went back and was was reading through this um, and so when I became a, a certified human behavior consultant um, in that training dr. Rome dr. Robert Rome who I think is one of the best in the world at what he does, he shared a message that hit home with me and, and this is what he said these are his words. Um, he said when you, when you find yourself uh, saying I can't wait for this to be over, or I will be happy when this situation ends, then, then your attitude is incorrect. And that the correct attitude is to step into a situation with an understanding of what am I supposed to learn from this assignment? And so what he was saying is if you're trying to get through a situation as quickly as possible, especially if it's difficult, then you'll try to speed the situation up and you'll miss the lesson. And if you go too fast, then you'll miss what you're supposed to learn and so life or your creator or whatever you believe assigns you these situations and these are not graded assignments like in school they're pass and they're fail and if you fail to learn from the situation then you're most likely going to be given that assignment again so if if you ever sit there and go why does this keep happening to me if you've ever caught yourself asking yourself that question the the reason being Is because you keep failing to learn from the situation. And this is why poor behavior seems to be repeated, or you may feel like you continue to attract unwanted outcomes. So it's not that you're continuing to attract bad situations. It's that you failed the previous assignment. So no matter how painful the assignment, no matter how much it hurts, approach it with an attitude that you're seeking the lesson. Find out what you're supposed to learn and improve. This, this is what solution-oriented people do. This is where growth happens. We can't ignore the situation, you embrace it. It could lead you down the path of, of, of untold fortunes, right? And so I've coupled this thought by, by looking at the timeline of my life, right? So I've gone back and looked at critical situations that, that still seem to bother me. They crowd my conscious thoughts. So the things that creep into my mind and shout at the positive things to, to bring negativity, Right. Does does that happen to you right when whenever you feel like you're starting to get positive momentum, you, you you've started something new. Right. and, and you, you start to get these good feelings and, and you start to you start to feel good about yourself and then your mind will start to self sabotage. They'll start to bring up resistance thoughts and, and I used to let those things bring me down. Right before I ever got on stage for the first time, 10 years ago, I, I was writing my first speech and, and, and immediately things were like, well, who's going to be listening to you? When, when I decided to start this show now, right, I just signed my, my three, my third year contract when I first started doing this is who, who's going to listen to this podcast? And now, now we're, we're downloaded in 92 countries, right? So I would listen to the negativity and allow that to hamper any positive momentum or any of my current growth. And so what I do now is search for the lesson that I missed. What did I fail to learn that I can apply to my growth? And how can I turn that negative thought or negative situation into a positive story or a positive affirmation to to create momentum? So try it, right? There's not a person on this planet whose mind isn't wired to tell them things that bring self-doubt or or self-awareness or make them pause. The only difference between really positive and successful people are those who are who are, it, 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 make the choice to filter out or not to listen to the negativity. And it can be as simple as a choice. One of my favorite things to teach is right we, we, when you're going to a meeting at work, do you, do you have to go to that meeting or do you get to go to that meeting? I was working with someone today and she, she was very frustrated with her job, and I said, you know, you certainly could be looking, you know, for a new job, but aren't you thankful to have one at the moment? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you, know, you, you could be searching for a job right now in a desperate situation where you don't have a job, and you don't know where your next paycheck's coming from, and you don't, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. But right now, while this job may not be fulfilling to you, you may not like the job, you have one. So do you have to go to work or do you have that unique opportunity that you get to go to work? And just by choosing to to change one word in the thought, I have to go to a meeting or I get to go to a meeting. I have to do this or I get to do this. It it changes a mindset that says it's going to be different. It's going to be positive. And that was one of the most powerful lessons that I've learned and being able to do things when, when I approach my work and and the things that I'm going to do every day, I get the opportunity to to do what I do. I get the opportunity and and I'm telling you, this is going to sound so stupid, right? But, but I get the opportunity to do laundry for my family. You know, I lost somebody very dear to me just, just, you know, a, a, a few days ago. And I, I was talking to my son about this this morning, this very lesson this morning, and and my son w- w- was a little upset because m- my wife had asked him to do something and he didn't want to do it right then and and I said, but you get the opportunity to 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 make mommy happy right now to do something for her, and and there there's going to come a time where you wish you would be able to do something for her and she's not going to be there, dude. It's just Right. If we reflect on, on what's just happened, I mean, he, he's a great friend of mine and, and I, I miss him so much. But he, he left two beautiful children behind who wish they had the opportunity to do something for him as simple as do his laundry or as simple as pick up after him. And so each time we, we start to think of the negative thoughts you, you can flip one word, you can flip one thing, and really start to realize what a blessing every action and activity that we take is. And so, one of my favorite books that, that, that I'll leave you with, and it was referred to me by Seth Godin, is called The War of Art. And it's by Stephen Pressfield. And you can go check that out. It's a beautiful book about resistance and how to overcome it. Really quick, short little sentences, uh, which is important for me because I have a short attention span. But check it out if you have time. Look, that's all the time I have on the Work-Life Balance this week. I hope you guys had a fantastic time next week, um, provided everything works out the way it's supposed to. But next week, we're going to have the Inga Rock on the show. And if you guys don't know who Inga Rock is, I mean, she is a powerful presence. and She's going to be talking to us about all the changes she's made to her business. She's really relaunched her entire platform. It's going to be a very powerful hour, especially if you own a business or in small business. The next week after that, April 27th, is a show you do not want to miss. We're going to have Maria Conchicau on the show. She's part of the Maria Christina Foundation. Her story is one of the most inspiring stories you will ever hear. I kid you not. You are definitely going to want to hear it. She has seven Guinness Book of World Records, and she's done all of that in service of others. You're absolutely going to want to hear this story. On uh, May 4th, we'll have Dave Gambrill on the show. And so we've got tons of exciting things coming up. You're definitely going to want to stick around on the work-life balance. We're so thankful that you continue to bless us with your presence. I don't have to do this show, man. I get to do this show. You guys are the ones that make that possible for me. So every Friday, 4 Central, 5 Eastern, right here on the voiceamerica.com business network. We love you every time you tune in. And we'll talk to you next Friday. You've been listening to Rick Morris.